As we continue in Matthew's Gospel, we've come now to the 27th chapter, beginning in verse 32. Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 32. Will you bow with me in prayer before we read God's Word? Our Father, we draw the sword, we do battle for the hearts and minds and souls of men and women and children. Your word is proclaimed, and you call all who are here to bow before your lordship and that Christ be enthroned upon the hearts of everyone present. We ask that your people would grow in the most holy faith and have a renewed sense of the the magnificence of your love and sending your Son to redeem us as we simply unpack before us the text. And we pray that those who may be among us who are strangers to grace, who do not know you, would be drawn by the blessed work of the Holy Spirit to you, O Father, and that they would embrace Jesus Christ as Savior. These things we pray in complete dependence upon the Holy Spirit's work through this word, In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, beginning with verse 32. This is the word of God. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, When he had tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. 
The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. Next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, After three days, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers? Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. In Gethsemane, our Lord said, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. The event that Jesus had contemplated with such horror, yet with absolute resolve, is here. Think of Gethsemane as a threshold. And now our Lord steps over that threshold and goes down into hell. The scourging and torture, we have seen already, have been unspeakably degrading. But there is more here than man's hatred of the Christ of God. God is at work in this passage to save us sinners from our sins. And the first thing we see is the king humiliated. The king humiliated. Usually the condemned man would carry his crossbeam to the place of execution. Jesus must have carried it for some distance before becoming physically unable to do so outside the city walls to show his rejection. Think of what he had endured for the past 15 hours. The upper room, Judas' betrayal, Gethsemane, the disciples who deserted him, the trial before the Sanhedrin, Caiaphas, Peter's denial, the trial before Pilate, scourging by Roman flagellum, torture, mocking of the soldiers in the praetorium. Jesus, in his weakened condition, carried the crossbeam as far as the city gates. And then this man, Simon, is pressed to carry it along to Golgotha. Golgotha, the place of the skull, 
Perhaps the shape of the, the geography, the topology of the place brought to mind a skull. Or perhaps it was called Golgotha because it was an unclean place and so designated by the Jews the place of the skull. An ordinary place. You see, Satan would have us forget Christ and forget his cross, just an ordinary place outside of Jerusalem. But it's not an ordinary place. Golgotha is situated between Mount Zion, representing the law, and the Valley of Gehenna, representing hell, if you catch my meaning. It is there that Jesus Christ meets the demands of the law, and it is there that he bears our hell in our place. We can never forget Golgotha. Jewish custom, based on Proverbs 31.6, was to give wine drugged with myrrh, to those who were to be executed in order to dull their senses, he did not take it. Why? Because the cup must be drained to its bitter dregs. He must experience our hell, and he must experience it consciously. Another explanation has been given. The soldiers, in offering him wine mixed with gall, which was not a narcotic, made the offering of the drink so bitter that it was undrinkable. In other words... The soldiers are purposefully tormenting him with drink that was undrinkable. In either case, like his father David in Psalm 69, he found no sympathy as he hung upon a cross. They crucified your Lord. They drove nails in his hands and his feet. They crucified your Lord, and he entered into utter humiliation. This is the way that slaves were put to death in the ancient world. Our word excruciating still captures the idea of the torment of the cross. It was a bloody reality. The victim would constantly attempt to bear himself up in order to keep from suffocating. The bleeding from the scourging and the nails and the constant agony, the breathlessness. Who can tell what our Lord endured? And in addition, there was the shame. Because the Romans crucified their victims naked. There he is, the Son of God, the creator of those who crucify him, hanging before them and a watching world, naked. And remember, from the Jewish perspective, the horror of it all was captured by Deuteronomy 21, verse 23. A hanged man is cursed by God. But isn't that it? Isn't that the whole point? Isn't that what this is all about? Jesus bearing the curse of the broken law for sinners as our substitute in our place. He's paying the price of sin to deliver us from hell. He's bearing the curse to make us completely acceptable to God. They divided his garments among them, casting lots. Unknown to them, fulfilling Psalm 22, verse 18, as read this morning. The second thing we see, the king mocked. The king mocked. The inscription we read in verse 37, and over his head they put the charge against him which read, this is Jesus the king of the Jews. The Romans placed it there to mock the Jews. The Romans had no idea that they were heralding the truth. He is the king of the Jews and he's your king too. And he calls upon you to bow before him. God speaks his truth through the sinner's mockery. The wrath of men in this text is praising him. Two robbers, or the word could be translated insurrectionists, were crucified with him, one on his left and the other 
on his right. I wonder if we're encouraged to remember James and John wishing to sit at his left and on his right in glory. Are you willing, Jesus had asked them, to be baptized with the baptism with which I will be baptized? Even those hanging on crosses on either side mocked him. Those who passed by mocked. We read in verses 39 and 40, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. But he will. He will raise up the temple of his body in three days. Psalm 22, verses 7 and 8. All who see me mock me. They hurl their insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him since he delights in him. And they say, mockingly, If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross and we will believe in you. D.A. Carson notes that Satan, even now, is trying to get Jesus to evade the Father's will and avoid further suffering so that he not die for our sins. Even now, he could have called legions to deliver him, but if he comes down, we are lost. The chief priests, scribes, and elders mocked him. Look at their religion, their external piety, all of their pomp and all of their show, but their jewelry is paste. Their religion is false. And Matthew wants you to catch a double entendre in verse 42. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He could not save himself and save you and me from our sins. Only if he does not save himself does he save others. They mock him as the Son of God. They mock him as the King of Israel. Let him come down and we will believe in him. But if he comes down, he does not shed the blood of atonement. If he comes down, there is no blood to remove the guilt of your soul and mine. There is nothing to wash away our sins. And the scripture would not be fulfilled. And God's purpose would fail. And that can never be. Oh, Jesus, we adore thee upon the cross. Our king, he rules, he reigns on this cross. He accomplishes the father's purpose. And in verse 43, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And indeed, he is the son of the living God, the second person of the Trinity incarnate. And they could not know that the son is now forsaken by his father. From the Roman perspective, there's nothing important about this at all. One crucifixion among many, a way to keep the famous Pax Romana, to keep the peace. Tacitus, the historian reviewing the troubles in Judea, comments, under Tiberius, nothing happened. Under Tiberius, nothing happened. The historical event planned by the triune God from all eternity to save sinners like you and me from our sins, but nothing happened. Christ bearing divine judgment so that you would be spared from hell, but nothing happened. The world passes it by or scornfully blasphemes. The third thing we see, the priest sacrificed. Darkness reigns over the cross from noon to 3 p.m. 
Do you remember the 8th chapter of the book of Amos in which Amos describes the judgment day that is to come in terms of darkness? He says, In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. That is the day of the Lord. That is the day of judgment that is coming. What is happening on the cross is that day of judgment for all of those who trust in Christ. It is the judgment day on all of the sins of all of God's people through all of the ages. In the Exodus, the last plague, the Lord kills the firstborn as Egypt is engulfed in utter darkness. Now, in judgment, Christ leaves us out of the darkness of sin by being engulfed in the darkness of judgment, sacrificing himself for our sins in our place. And now when the devouring angel comes to destroy us, if the blood of Christ is over the doorpost of the heart, the angel of death passes over us. There is now peace because of his cross. His infinite nature gave to his finite sufferings infinite value so that he is a complete, sufficient, and final atonement for sins. Do you believe him? Do you believe that? That in Christ you find the full, complete, and final oblation for your sins? There he is in darkness. Who can tell the agony of the Son of God? He bears the hell of his people. God is saying to his own Son, you be the sin bearer for your people. You be the adulterer. You be the lawbreaker. You be the murderer. You be the thief. The Holy Son of God is sin in the sight of His Father as the sin of His people is imputed to His account in our place. Who can tell what He endured? Matthew records the cry of dereliction in verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The experience of Gethsemane now comes to its completion. Jesus is alone, utterly alone, completely alone. And he quotes his own words given long ago through the prophet by divine inspiration about himself. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? From the psalm that was read by Elder Campbell earlier this morning. Schilder, the Dutch theologian, says, We can say now that he was in hell as the perfect stranger. He did not belong there. He could not acclimate himself to that place. How do we understand these words, this cry, My God, why have you forsaken me? How do we understand them? We understand them in this way. That your sin, believer, was put on Jesus by imputation. That when you believe in him, you might receive his perfect righteousness. We understand these words of forsakenness because Paul tells us Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. You know those words of Elizabeth Barrett Browning from the, the poem, Cooper's Grave? Yea, once Emmanuel's orphaned cry, his universe hath shaken, it went up single echoless, my God, I am forsaken. It went up from the holy lips amid his lost creation, 
that of the lost no son should use those words of desolation. That's it. He cries these words that if you believe in him, you would never, never cry these words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The priest is mocked as a prophet. Beginning in verse 47, some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and put a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. This sour wine that belonged to the soldiers, common drink for these men, was given to him to drink. It was probably mockery, not mercy. They wanted to prolong his agony on the cross. You see, we have so domesticated the cross. We are so familiar with it on one level that we forget the torment and the torture of it all. We should never minimize the physical sufferings of our Savior in our place, because in our place condemned he stood. But we should also remember the great issue here. Jesus on that cross is bearing the wrath of the eternal God against the sins of his people so that you might not bear them. On the cross, there was more than met the eye, and in the darkness that prevailed when no man could see Jesus, he endured in body and soul unknown sufferings. And he did it willingly. As the old theologians used to speak, the whole-souled suffering of the Son of God. Why? That sinners like us might be saved from hell, he bore our hell. That's the meaning of the line in the creed. He descended into hell. He bore our hell for us. But do you also see in the midst of this suffering, fourthly, victorious death? We see victorious death in this passage in several ways. First, in verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Jesus gave his life. No man took it from him. At the moment of forsakenness by his father, when the cruel torture was at its height, Jesus sovereignly gave his life and atonement for sin. It was then finished, complete, done, never to be repeated. We see victorious death also in the curtain. The curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, that part of the temple into which the high priest entered once a year to make atonement, the curtain was torn from top to bottom by the very hand of Almighty God. Jesus, our high priest, has entered the veil for us. He has made atonement once for all. The death of Jesus has opened the entrance into the presence of God. And no matter how deep your sin has been, no matter how great your rebellion, no matter how ugly your depravity, if your trust is in Jesus Christ, he can forgive you this morning and he can cleanse you from your sin because he paid the price in full and the way to God is now open. The curtain has been torn. The victory is also seen in the open tombs. We read these mysterious verses, 52 and 53. The tombs, we are told, 
also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. There is much here that we are not told, but we do know this. The earthquake is a symbol of God's presence as seen at Sinai and of judgment as we read in the book of Revelation and other places. And these resurrections, they are but signs of the great victory of the cross and of the resurrection that will take place in three days and of free access to God. And it says that the salvation of those dying before Jesus came is totally dependent on this Jesus who went to this cross and who will be raised on the third day just as our salvation is completely dependent upon Jesus who went to that cross and was raised on the third day. The victory of his death is also seen in the Roman centurion's confession and others with him in verse 54. Truly, this was the Son of God. A Gentile was the first to confess him. The darkness, the earthquake, the cry, and most of all, the noble demeanor of our Lord were used to convince the centurion and others that this was the Son of God. The Jews, with their scriptures, totally miss it because they do not have eyes to see it. This Gentile's eyes were opened by sovereign grace, and this pagan is the first to confess the lordship of Jesus and that he is the Savior of men. And the women are there. These faithful women, doing what the disciples should be doing, they were the last at the cross, they will be the first at the empty tomb. Think on the glories of the cross, will you? God has created man upright, and man has sinned, and there is this breach between us and God, such a breach that we hate the God who is. Let me ask you here, those who are here who are unconverted, Let me ask you, such a breach, such rebellion against God, how do you plan to make it up? What could you do ever to repair such a breach? Let me ask you, unconverted man or woman or child, do you realize that God is infinitely holy? Do you not see the holiness of God in this text? Do you see that you are hopeless and you are helpless without the cross? That you need this Redeemer, you need the Savior, that you cannot save yourself, you can never make yourself acceptable to God. Do you see here in the substitute of sinners your need for the Redeemer, Jesus Christ? And now, believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, do you understand that because of the cross, because of what Jesus did in this text, because of the cross, there is not one drip of wrath remaining for your sins. That the Lord says, because Jesus paid the price for your sins, the mountain shall depart, the hills will be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee. That there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. God the Father has no wrath toward you, for all of his wrath was poured out on his Son, on a cross, in your place, as he substituted himself for you. Oh, the glories of the cross. Jesus, our only Savior. God is holy, but the last of the laws threatening has cracked over the head of the Son of God that you might never know his judgment. 
And as you trust in him, his cross speaks peace, peace, peace between God and man. But there's one other thing for you to see, a fifth thing. Our Lord buried. Tacitus, the historian, says people sentenced to death forfeited their property and were forbidden burial. But something special happens here. An hour or two is left before the Sabbath would begin. Joseph of Arimathea, Matthew tells us he was a disciple, comes with this daring request to Pontius Pilate, asking that the body of Jesus be given into his care. The request is granted. And Jesus is placed in a rock tomb, not only a rock tomb, but according to verse 61, the rock tomb that belonged to Joseph himself. This was this rich man's own tomb in which he was to be placed. And it explains to us how the women who will come on resurrection morning know where to come because they are there having followed behind the body of Jesus Outward mourning was forbidden for one that was hung upon a cross. And so weeping silently behind the body of Jesus, there they are as Jesus' body is placed in the tomb. Matthew also mentions that Joseph was a rich man, thus fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 53, 9 through 12. Week after week, we recite together the Apostles' Creed, was crucified, dead, and was buried. You see, his burial is part of our confession of faith. It really occurred. This is not a myth. It happened in history, in time, and in space. And the tomb was sealed. It seems irrevocable. Jesus was really crucified. He really died. He was really buried. He was really sealed in a garden tomb. D.A. Carson makes this observation about tombs in the New Testament era. Tombs were of various kinds. Many were sealed with some sort of boulder wedged into place to discourage wild animals and grave robbers. But an expensive tomb consisted of an antechamber hewn out of the rock face with a low passage. Do you remember in John 20, they bent over as they went into the tomb? Leading into the burial chamber that was sealed with a cut, disc-shaped stone that rolled into a slot cut into the rock. The slot was on an incline, making the grave easy to seal but difficult to open. Several men might be needed to roll the stone back up the incline. This sort of tomb is presupposed in the gospel records. The grave then points back to the Adam Fall. The fall of the human race in Adam's sin. It is part of the humiliation that Jesus must bear for our salvation. The grave is a necessary part of his shame and his disgrace that he bore for us. The Son of Man is dead, is really dead at the end of this chapter because Jesus is conquering the last enemy, death. And then Pilate. Pilate tells the soldiers to go guard the tomb. I can't help but smile as I read it. That's right, Pilate. You seal it up. Go on, seal it up. Seal it up tight. It's no matter 
Death cannot keep its prey. Jesus in the tomb, three days, a dramatic pause, breathless silence. But my heart leaps into my mouth as I think of next week's text. As we await the next chapter, as we await Easter morning.